drop. Story Fort presents Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. This welcome, is a true story. Welcome. We do. Welcome. I am one of your hosts, Larry Rosen, along with Christian Wind. You didn't let me finish my oh, intro. I, I was sorry. giving a dramatic I pause. Story Fort co-founder and director. Christian Wynn. Yes, thank you. Can Mr. you hit Larry the applause Rosen? button? <laughs> thank you, Brett. Uh, if we're a little loopy, it's because we just spent an hour talking to one of the founders of Burning Man. We did. Which can leave you a little loopy, although I don't think our guest was very... Uh, Jerry James was our guest, and he was a pretty sober dude. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he He's was a pretty serious guy, pretty sober guy, but he was the person who built the first Burning Man. Literally, yes. Literally. He was the carpenter that was approached by Larry Harvey. Who was a good friend of his at the time. Who, right. Who also did pass away a couple years he back. He passed away last year. Last yeah. year. I mean, I guess Larry Harvey is when, if you look at Burning Man, that's the first name you'll see. He had the idea and he ran with it. And as Jerry uh, outlines for us during our conversation, he sort of made it his career and his life. He did. Whereas for Jerry, he had a lot of other stuff going on. So after a few years, he went from, from building the actual Burning Man to participant. And now he's back doing some work out there. But I mean, he knows where the bodies are buried. He knows where the bodies are buried and uh, you'll be able to hear that at StoryFort this year because he is doing a uh, presentation. But for now we have... We have an hour conversation with Jerry. You'll hear all about it. You'll hear about the mysterious missing Burning Man. One year. You'll hear about tales of growth, fences, corporations, (laughs) billionaires. Tech people. Tech people. Yeah. So let's not waste any more time and let let them listen to this conversation with Jerry James. All right. The original Burning Man building. Jerry, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Yes. Glad to be here. We're going to do, just a second, we're going to do that again, but uh, we are doing an intro afterwards. So yeah, oh, yeah. That was not exactly how it's going to start. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so There are some podcasts, like Mark Marin will start like that, where they'll be talking, and then 30 seconds later, the guests go, oh, wait, we're recording? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are recording. So, yes, Jerry, welcome uh, into Story Fort Presents. The Mine Reels, I feel like we're talking to a piece of living history here because mm. you were at the beginning of something that is so big, 70,000 people last year went to Burning Man, which I'm guessing in no way resembles what you began in 1986 <laughs> on Baker Beach. Not in very many ways. There well, were fire at both events. <laughs> okay, there, there, was a, there, was, there was wood shaped like a man. Yeah. <laughs> First and, year, maybe we can hear about it, but it, was, it wasn't it was super realistic. We'll put it that way. I saw the picture of it, but it yeah. was just something you started that morning and put up that evening, but we'll hear about that in a minute. Sorry, okay. interrupt. So why don't you tell us how you became involved with Larry Harvey's project, or would you say it was both of your project? Well, um, Larry and I had met in 85, winter of 85, 86, and a short time later, on June 21st of 86, of course, that day was the summer solstice. So Larry and I had become pretty good friends already. Um, He called me up out of the blue and uh, asked me if I wanted to go build and burn an effigy on the beach. Uh, to commemorate the summer solstice. Now, I read that you had written that what you guys had in common was really a love of literature and philosophical literature, and you were kind of reading the same books. So when he came to you and said, I want to burn an effigy, Mm. was your response like, what? Or was it like, oh, yeah, I get this. 
No, it was like, what? Why? <laughs> Why do this? As best I can remember, again, it's very spontaneous. I mean, I know it's it's probably kind of hard for a lot of folks to look back at this point, given how deliberate and structured and everything the reality of Burning Man is at this point. But this is a very spontaneous event, the first day, the first time. As far as literature, yeah, Larry's a prodigious reader. I'd read a few hard books. I was an English major briefly at Boise State a long time ago, but Larry was definitely on another level when it came to, to that. Yeah, we had met at a friend's house who was, like myself, also a builder. And in San Francisco, there are a lot of builders who are, you know, pretty cultured people. So uh, we met at a, a party, a get-together with folks like that and kind of jumping around here. But to get back to the day of, so Larry called me, asked uh, if I wanted to, to build an effigy. I'm kind of like, well, why, you know? Mm-hmm. And before I pr- proceed with to, you know, telling you what we did after that, you know, most folks, before we talk about this for very long, they want to know well, why we did it, why we went ahead and, or why he called me, I guess. Yeah, you know, what was his motivation? Because it was his idea. So there are about three things that, that come to mind. One is, is one that's kind of out there in, in the lore that Larry had had a, a broken heart from a, an affair. I mean, in fact, uh, there had been a girl named Paula whose uh, time with him uh, preceded me meeting him. So, you know, I, I think that had some influence on on that phone call. Second, Larry was reading a book called uh, The Golden Bough, which is a, an anthropological book. And, you know, among other things, it has quite a bit of discussion of fire festivals throughout, especially European history. And the final thing, and to me, I think the most significant was that he had actually attended uh, an event at least once, maybe more often, that a friend uh, had held at Baker Beach. And that event included gathering up stuff that had literally washed up on the shore. And this friend created a little spontaneous sculpture. And that's some point they they burned it and it was on the solstice so in that regard you know larry was repeating something he had actually done before he gave it some shape though this time or he wanted to give it some shape uh how do you mean literally or yeah the, the shape of the event or the figure or it seems like one follows the other <clears throat> rather than just gather some wood and set fire to it right right he was going to make an effigy yeah and so needed you because you knew how to build an effigy <laughs> Right, that's right. Yeah, I was a builder already. Even way back then, I'd already had quite a bit of uh, construction experience. I was a carpenter. So yeah, it it was uh, very spontaneous, and it was a weekend, and I didn't really have my tools on hand. I'm pretty sure they would have been over to job site. So a short time later, we arrived at a garage of a mutual friend, and there were a lot of uh, scrap pieces of lumber, really, really no full pieces of lumber, and, and virtually nothing in the way of tools. So, I mean, there was a hammer and a motley collection of nails and and these rippings, these skinny, long pieces of lumber. And I remember even breaking some of them just by hand because really we had like a dull old keyhole saw like everybody's <laughs> uncle has in their toolkit. And what's the what's the aggregate total of, of construction experience among everyone there who's not you? Well, it was just Larry and I. So oh, okay, so just the just two of the you. Just the two of you. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And Larry couldn't really build. I mean, he could, he could build little kind of decorative things occasionally. Well, you had said later that he was more comfortable as a supervisor than an actual builder. Uh, I don't know if I said it exactly that way, but <laughs> close enough. I was being yeah. diplomatic. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, fast forward, we, we certainly, uh, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. So again, anything. anyway, this first figure we built was, was very spontaneous, and we had these rippings, which are long, skinny pieces of lumber, and did the best that I could to try to imagine how to create some kind of volume and not simply have a flat, two-dimensional stick figure. So I came upon the idea of making pyramids. You know, the head of, of even that first crude uh, effigy is an inverted pyramid, as are the legs. 
you know, the hips came out a little larger than they might have. As primitive as it was, I thought the rib cage actually looked like a rib cage and it was kind of okay. And then we had these sticks. I applied these sticks for like a crown at the top. How'd you get it to stand? Well, it just had some long pointed, uh, okay. probably like one by twos that stuck down beyond where the feet would be and they were pointed and... And so we got to the beach, uh, we just jabbed it in the ground. I, I think I did have to kind of dig around some in the sand to, to get it down in there enough to where it would stand. But, you know, it was a pretty lightweight and assembly. Was it cold and foggy? Well, as I remember it, when we arrived, it wasn't, which, um, mm. yeah, if you, I know you've I been know. to San Francisco beaches year, in yeah. the summer. And, That's and they often are. Well, I say when we arrived. Right. And so, you know, we pulled up in the parking lot at Baker Beach that first time and just had this one piece effigy on my pickup. So we grabbed it and started hiking down the beach. There were only about a dozen of us. You know, I remember being a little embarrassed when we passed people because they're like, well, what the hell is that thing, you know? <laughs> but uh, this was broad daylight. Yeah. Okay. Late afternoon, or I guess, or post afternoon because uh, after all, once it got dark, we burned it. So, so yeah, it was Larry and I and our girlfriends and our kids. You had described it in the piece you wrote as a glorified picnic. Yeah, family picnic. Family picnic, yeah. Right, right. Hmm. I mean, it really was. You know, we brought some snacks and a couple drinks, and, and we had this effigy, and we hung around for a while and told a few jokes. And, and then uh, I remember it getting, once it did get dark, it did start to get windy and cold. So eventually I took the ga- one gallon of gasoline that I brought and dumped it over the top of this eight-foot figure and, you know, applied fire. And, of course, it burned very violently, it being gasoline <laughs> yeah. and, and just a bunch of sticks. We had, there was some burlap, too, that kind of was part of the effect. So that was very flammable. What did the other people on the beach do other than imagining give you a wide berth? <laughs> well, well, in fact, they did the opposite. Well, for, in oh. the first place, my memory of it was there were only about a half a dozen other people down there at that point. And by the way, this is all the way at the north end of Baker Beach, where, where is actually where the nude beach is. Not there were any nude people there that night. It was cold. So I remember about a half a dozen other people that were not far from us that did come over once they saw this fire all of a sudden. And uh, they joined us. In fact, one of the pictures that I took that of that event and that effigy, uh, there's someone doing a selfie. She's she's holding the arm of the of the effigy and it's not hmm. like a selfie now like where you have a stick or something you're holding it out so i guess her husband was standing over there and, and took the picture and i still have not found out who that person is so if you're out there Listening. please get a hold of me yeah. so was larry harvey right was burning something in effigy as you're standing there watching it go up was there any sort of clarity or you know a third eye opening or was it just oh well, that was cool we burned something yeah i would say like the latter. Yeah. Yeah. What about for Larry? Well, I, I really don't know. I, I, I can't imagine it was a whole lot more than that. I mean, the thing was all of eight feet tall. I mean, it burned in probably in five minutes and, you know, it was cool, but I, you know, we had a dozen people and I don't know. His telling of it sort of embellishes things a little more, I think. Was it something like that you talked about year round? Like, like we're, we're partying down at the beach or hanging out at the beach and we should do that again next year kind of thing, or... Yeah, was there a sense that like, you were going to do it again? Boy, I can't remember. I mean, it's been over 30 years. That I don't remember. But you did do it again. <laughs> we did do it again, which is, you and know, kind of more significant than why we did it in the first place, was why we did it again. Mm. And so, yeah, we, we talked about it and enthused the day of and a couple times throughout the year, I'm sure. But again, it was very spontaneous and a very small event. So indeed, when the solstice was approaching the following year, we decided to repeat it and 
and make it a, a more significant uh, structure and do it right, quote unquote. So went and bought lumber and, and yes, that's when I had a bunch of roommates. My girlfriend and I had a funky old mansion on Cap Street in the Mission District of San Francisco and we, we built the thing on the back. Uh, we had a pretty generous back deck there at ground level. So I fashioned that Burning Man out of actual lumber with actual tools over the course of a couple of weekends. Now at this point though, it's 15 feet tall? Yeah, that's about what it appears to be in the photos I have. So much harder to get to the beach and set fire to without being detected. Well, yes and no. It still wasn't anything like the size it would be the following year, which was the year I built what has now become called uh, the Classic Man. So that second year, yes, it was a it was kind of like a family picnic again, but a bigger family picnic. So in a way, it was like a sequel to the first mm-hmm. event. And this time, again, we planned ahead and built it and took the time we needed to build it and invited a bunch of family and friends and had maybe 30, maybe 40 tops people there, probably closer to 30. So at and this it, point, the crowd's yeah. still people you know, though. That's right. Yeah, it's still not a public event. It's it's a private, big mm-hmm. family picnic and with a feature, a fire feature. How far into the picnic do you set fire to it? Oh, you know, we were probably there an hour, maybe two before we set it, before we burned it. No trouble with the authorities or anybody else. It was another cold, windy, foggy-ish night at San Francisco Beach, so still no incidents there with with any kind of enforcement or anything. Was it the year that you had the 30-foot one that, the, that there were police? Yes. And you sent a long video that it was kind of fairly crude video, but it was pretty cool to see it. And it's kind of the voice. We couldn't really see the cops, but we could hear their voices from what I what right. I took in. But yeah, it was pretty, it was a big structure. I mean, it was, yeah. it actually fell down a couple of times when you were trying to set it, it up. But it's like, yeah. yeah, it was just, it was a task for sure. Get that thing to yeah. get up. And you're stuffing like newspaper and that kind of stuff in the body of it seemed like that kind of thing to, to right. you know, to soak up the gas and then. It was cool to see. It was kerosene that time. Kerosene, okay. Yeah, yeah that, that would have been pretty dangerous with the I suppose that's true. Gas for yeah. something that big. Yeah. But so as as you build these every year and as they become more elaborate, as the carpenter, how important was it for you that it be an elegant structure, that it be a nice burning man versus how important it was for anyone else there? Yeah, it was important to me and to Larry. And we, you know, uh, that year, 1988, the third Burning Man, we decided to build it 30 feet tall. And and sure, we collaborated, at times argued about how the thing should look, you know, detail by detail, structural element by structural element, which is more my area. Again, Larry wasn't a builder. Yeah, this time we spent weekend after weekend, long weekends for months building that structure. And so for the first time, I designed it and built it so that there were five, separate components being the legs, the torso, the arms, and the head, so that it could be transported across uh, San Francisco to the beach and and then assembled Mm. there and erected and and burned. At this point, are there flyers being sent out yet? Uh, Well, we still, well, we never did apply for any kind of permit or ask permission to to do this project, you know, build a 30-foot sculpture at a public beach, which was actually an army base at the time, and and built and burned this thing. We did create a poster for that year. I don't think we printed a ton of them and, and distributed a ton of them. In fact, we were pretty alarmed because we the first media coverage there was was a small notice and reference to the fact that three guys were building a 
a big structure at a shop on Dubose Street and planned to take it over to Baker Beach and burn it. So you said that was a little concerning. What was the concern that, uh-oh, all these people would show up? No, no, more like, uh-oh, the cops would show up. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and they did. Was there ever a point where there was a conscious decision that was made to open it up to the public? And if so, how did everyone feel about that? Well, yeah. Um, That's that, when the nature changes, right? The nature of the, of the event. Yeah. yeah, when it no longer is a family picnic. That's right. Yeah. So that third time we did it, 1988, that's when it went from being a family picnic to becoming a public event. So I don't remember us making big deliberate efforts to publicize it. I'm pretty sure we met the Cacophony Society right about then because I read about them in the Bay Guardian and and thought, well, these people sound pretty kooky. Maybe they'll help me build this thing. (laughs) Explain to our listeners who the Cacophony Society is. Right. So it was an informal, I'll call it a club, that that did projects and pranks and had for a number of years in San Francisco and the Bay Area. I mean, some of their events included... A treasure hunt during the Chinese New Year parade, you know, formal dinners with costumes on the Golden Gate Bridge, climbing the bridge many times, uh, <laughs> you know, of course, illegally. So, yeah, heard about these folks, invited them, and Goffney Society published a newsletter monthly. So, I'm not, I should know this, but 1988, they probably posted it in their newsletter. In any event, yeah, we certainly wanted the public to come. Okay. Yeah. At that point, and although we were certainly apprehensive that at some point the police were going to show up, nonetheless we didn't intend to hurt anybody and felt uh, confident about what we were doing, so we, you know, we proceeded. And yeah, that night, something like 100, 150 people showed up, I think, many of whom I didn't know. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was a public event then. And at what point did it become? I was going to say, what point did it add a philosophy to it? Because there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's ten points of yeah, the ten, ten guy, principles. Ten principles. Yeah. Were you still involved at that point? Uh, uh, certainly not at a, a you know primary builder level. Yeah, when did you stop building the Burning Man? Well, I, I built the first four almost single-handedly uh, that were at Baker Beach, and and there was one more at Baker Beach where I was just kind of going through the motions. You know, Larry and I had been very close friends, and as the project grew, you know, he did some things that were pretty unfriendly, and I I don't want to go into a lot of detail and considering camp on Larry, but it's important I think for the story to make sense that people know that I didn't just at that point uh, withdraw from my role as the primary builder of Burning Man just because I got bored or something. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. And also maybe worth mentioning that, you know, it seemed pretty obvious to me because of a couple things that happened that Larry would do a lot, maybe just about anything to to further his cause with expanding Burning Man. And and so, you know, that, that was not good for our friendship. So after 1989, after the fourth Burning Man, I withdrew from my primary role as the primary builder of Burning Man. You you still went, though. Uh, yeah, a lot. There were some uh, gaps. So in what happened in 1990, the fifth man at the, was uh, at Baker Beach, and this time the police got there in time to stop us. They didn't stop us entirely because, you know, it always worked out okay with the cops. Um, we were able to negotiate with them, and on our word that we would simply erect this sculpture and when we were done at the end of the evening, take it home. On our promise that we'd do that, they left. And of course, this time there were hundreds of people, and a lot of them were pretty excited to, to see that thing burn, including me. But we were restrained ourselves and and did take it down and took it home again that was on the summer solstice so 
you know, unexpectedly, we still had the sculpture on hand. Yeah, what do you do with a 30-foot-tall Burning Man in your house? <laughs> right, <laughs> in your house, indeed. So we took it back to this lot where we had built it, and uh, the owners of the lot, one of them was sympathetic to our cause and one was not, and I think the one that was our friend was out of the country at the time, and the other guy, well, I don't know exactly how it worked out, but I do know uh, we, we took the figure back there and stored it, the bigger pieces of it at least. A week or so later, I was walking by there and observed that now this, what had been this funky kind of parking lot was all spiffed up and it was like this professional parking lot, you know, where people paid and mm-hmm. parked their nice cars and stuff. And I didn't even have to walk to the back of the lot, but I did to just observe that, hey, no Burning Man here. Uh-huh. So that, those pieces, the legs and the torso of Burning Man 1990 are still at large. If you <laughs> find them, please notify me. Wow. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, yeah, at this point, you say hundreds of people were there or yeah. a few hundred so obviously it's grown and like is there a buzz like around the city and the bay area and maybe maybe further at that point and then did that sort of change the dynamic of maybe larry's vision for it or was it was like maybe i don't or i didn't want to get make you put words into his his mouth but i'm just curious like what that's like to kind of have start a movement and at that time how did it feel for you and maybe that was one of the reasons you did maybe you just didn't like the limelight as much or maybe you just were like these hippies are kind of weird i don't know how i gotta get out of here i got my um were you aware you were starting a movement no i i certainly wasn't i mean larry quickly became kind of obsessed with it that way and i don't it became his life's work it did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have a career otherwise. He dabbled at this and that. He'd been a bike messenger. He'd been a gardener. He'd been a bunch of things and actually hurt his back, so he couldn't really do physical stuff. So, yeah, he started writing about it. There was little attention from the, I guess, legitimate art community, I'll call it. So there there was some attention starting to be paid to the project. However, uh, that year, 1990, so again, it happened on the summer solstice. All the Beach burns were on the solstice. Figure still existed after the the fifth one in 1990 because it didn't burn. So for a couple of reasons, the thing ended up for the first time on Labor Day weekend a few months later, going up to Black Rock Desert where it it still. And how did it end happens. up there? specifically? Well, there are a couple kind of coincidences, or at least one coincidence. Uh, Cacophony Society, who, again, we'd known now, they really hadn't participated in a real significant way at the beach, but um, they had planned what they called a zone trip. They used to do these trips, road trips, and go do some of their pranks. Hmm. So they actually had planned one for Black Rock uh, Desert over Labor Day weekend. In fact, Larry and I knew about that desert because um, another artist who'd done a couple of projects out there, first place, he'd shown us some videotape this giant croquet game that he did where he had these (laughs) six-foot earth balls and they rammed them with cars to make them go through the the wickets (laughs) they made out of plumbing pipe or PVC pipe. So they'd done that a couple years prior. And then in 1989, I actually went up there on Labor Day weekend after building and burning the Burning Man on the solstice and uh, attended a wind sculpture festival that this same fellow put on. It was very Burning Man-esque. So there were all these kind of Mad Max-looking vehicles, and there were about 50 or 70 people. This guy named Mel had kind of the primary wind sculpture, and then a bunch of the other folks in their various camps had some kind of wind sculpture. And uh, so I was at that in 89. So I then had first-hand experience with Black Rock Playa. And so again, when it came time to, you know, do something with this figure. And by the way, we had anticipated that we we're going to get, you know, stopped ultimately at Baker Beach. We'd scouted other beaches and locations around the Bay Area. Where else did, were you thinking of doing it around the Bay Area? 
Well, down there toward Half Moon Bay, there's okay. um, poor Half Moon Bay. What's that called? Montara. Miramar? Montara, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that was certainly one, but... Yeah, that didn't quite look right, and definitely would have been foggy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see the that video that you sent. I just looked at the sky and went, "Yep, that's summer solstice in San Francisco." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then what? So what year did it land in the desert? The the fifth year, ninety. Ninety. Okay. Fifth year, yeah. So and that was like there. the split year. You might right. call it right? at the beach and sure. at the desert for the first time. And I can tell you, so I didn't go out to the desert that time, that first time in ninety. But I did go the following year. So then it becomes quite a commitment because it's an overnight trip. Oh, yeah. It's 400 miles from San Francisco. Yeah. It's yeah. just out east of uh, Reno, right? Northeast? Yeah, mostly north. Okay. About 70, 80 miles. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so it's a hike. You can drive in there, you were saying. Is it BLM land? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it was really kind of a big reset. So last time Burning Man's at Baker Beach, there's maybe 500 people there. You get out to Black Rock Desert and there's 50, you know, or Hmm. 100. And And a much bigger space. It's huge space. And, you know, you've got the Burning Man. One rider truck, you know, took the Burning Man and various parts and other people drove their vehicles versus now it's like a military operation when they roll in for the, the week-long event every year i mean really they yeah how many i don't know if you would be able to answer this but do you know how many people are employed by burning man now um about a hundred are full-time year-round employees and then they've got to have way more to staff the site oh yeah 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 there's a, you know, a division called the bl or blm a dpw that does their a lot of their infrastructure work and i was told they had 700 people last year so more people are now working Burning Man than actually yeah. went to it for the yeah. first five years. Yeah, for sure. When you got out there that first year and saw 50 to 100 people, was it kind of disappointing? Well, I, I don't know about disappointing, but I can tell you to reference back to some of the things we've talked about already. It certainly didn't feel like a movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Did it feel yeah. like it might be waning? Well, it did. Or it felt like more like, in, you know, I'd felt this a lot when we were still doing it at the beach. Like, I don't know, lonely, frustrating that we weren't getting attention. It's like, what do we got to do, you know? Yeah. Build this big thing and it's free. and. But so at that point, everyone was sort of on the same page. I mean, yeah, we want this to grow. We want people to see this. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I'm not sure they were. I think folks were, especially when, when it got to BlackRock, because I think it was easy, quote unquote, to build some enthusiasm in San Francisco, because after all, it was just an evening's entertainment. Right. So you just drive to the beach, you know, watch this thing get built and burned and go home. And, and San Franciscans are up for any wacky idea. Yeah. Sure, let's do it. Yeah. So it was harder out there. I mean, it just it sort of floors me because it sounds like a completely different event. You had yeah. to completely reinvent it. Yeah, kind of. So again, the first couple of times, there weren't the art cars and costumes and theme camps and stuff, but that stuff started to, to be created one by one. And um, yeah, I would say those first couple of years up there, it was sort of finding its sea legs again. But then by, I'll say, 94, it really started to get traction action again and and really much more significantly to the point where character of the event was changing conspicuously year to year population of it was doubling so let's see 96 was about 9,000 so 9,000 people wow yeah so probably 94 there were probably a couple thousand people 95 there were probably 4,000 and 96 which is the next big watershed as far as I'm concerned there were probably eight or nine thousand and how was how was the news being spread? Just word of mouth? Yeah. No one did some, no news organization came and did some feature that went, you know, clued in the world to it? Well, they might have, but I don't think any any big ones. I mean, they were pretty, I don't think anything significant like that was going and on. What, I think it was word of mouth mostly. Was it multiple days already in the Yeah. Room? 
But, but now it's a week long. Back mm-hmm. then it was just more like a Labor Day weekend. And what year did they have to make rules? Because I was reading there was one year when all of a sudden, like, we can't have these people, you know, yeah. just ripping across the, the desert at right. high speeds. Right. And they started creating actual rules. Well, yeah, I mentioned 96 being a watershed, best of times, worst of times. I mean, it really, the sort of frenzy and the anarchy and everything else that was coming to be part of this thing was, was really peaking then. Uh, so much so that the first fatality happened. Oh, hmm. how'd that happen? So I think there were about 150 of us out there at that point. This was before the event started, several days, maybe even, a, I don't think it was quite a week, but for sure it was at least several days ahead of when the thing was supposed to start. So a bunch of us are out there setting up, building structures and whatnot. And, you know, so Black Rock Desert, we haven't really described that for anybody listening who may not know. This event takes place on this huge, it's called a playa. It's an ancient lake bed. Well, not all that ancient in terms of geological time. It was a lake as recently as, I think, 9,000 years ago or 15,000. Either way, very recently geologically. So presently, it's, it's this cracked clay flat desert, featureless. There's no plants or anything growing on it. And it's about 400 square miles. I think it's the biggest thing like it in North America. So anyway, there's a little town right next to this desert called Gerlach. And uh, a bunch of the folks went in and had some food and some drinks. And a guy named Michael Fury, despite being quite drunk and his friends trying to uh, convince him otherwise, he decided he's going to ride his motorcycle back to the camp. So he and a couple of like 40 conaline vans are trucking across the playa at about 50 miles an hour probably and he starts doing big loops around them as they're traveling and you know eventually he just cut it too close and, and encountered he ran into one of the, the vehicles mm-hmm. head on wow. and, and he died instantly so wow. I thought after that maybe we'd all just pack up and go home it seems it was sobering really yeah terrifying just to hear about it and so was- yeah that was the year when everything just got really crazy for better and worse and the following year for the first time uh, there there was actually a fence erected and now the whole thing could start to be controlled much more mm-hmm. i i don't remember dis- distinctly exactly when the, how many rules were when rules were created and applied but if not that year certainly not long after there were rules put in place to stop people from driving their vehicles all over the camp, mm-hmm. including me and my dirt bike, <laughs> and people from bringing guns out there and having fun with guns and drugs and all that stuff. So, Which must be, like you said, the best of times, the worst of times, because... Yeah. So much of the original idea was just anarchy. Yeah, or if it wasn't, you know, deliberately considered to be that, I mean, that's, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I guess anarchy isn't scalable. That's well, a good point, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I'm just curious, along the way, obviously, culture was built and kind of these traditions. And I have to say, I have never been to Burning Man. I've um, seen many pictures and all that and read up on things. But when did you feel like people were bringing, like you said, those art cars, or like the things that Burning Man people do, like, but all these traditions and or just the culture of it all? When did that really kind of become solidified? And, and where, if you could define it, you know, if someone could say, what, what's Burning Man about? And they're like, oh, it's super cool. We've got all this and this mm-hmm. and this and this and drugs maybe too so um when would you say that kind of took got its foothold as kind of a permanent thing of what the the identity of burning man was is i guess well certainly by 96 the year i was just describing which Mm. was you know again the last year without the fence Mm -hmm. so to me after that then you know the thing starts moving toward becoming formulaic fostering a corporation Mm. Um, i didn't want to say burning man inc but that's what i was thinking oh yeah it's a big big operation. Um, it's, as I mentioned, there's 100 full-time employees, approximately. 
and they're growing. I might have mentioned it earlier, but if you don't know, there are what are called regionals, and there have been for many years now, which are essentially mini Burning Mans that are happening all over the country and all over the world. Do they do burns at them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went to my first one for the last uh, June with some Boise friends uh, down Hmm. towards Salt Lake. It's called E11. Mm -hmm. And gosh, they've been going for many years. And a bunch of Boiseans go over to one in Western Oregon called Soak. But there are regionals held in South Africa, Israel, Germany, Japan. So How many do they usually have? How many people? Well, I don't know. The population of the others. Um, Africa Burns always mentioned is kind of the prominently... Um, gosh, I can't remember a few thousand. I, I know that I, when I attended E11, there was uh, 1,500 people there. And was mm-hmm. that sort of refreshing for you? Did it yeah. take you back? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it felt more neighborly. Mm-hmm. And while a lot of people at the main event are really great people and friendly and generous and all kinds of good things, yeah, there's just more people. So you have 70,000. 70,000. Yeah. yeah. And when this was all happening and it was growing and it seems like what you're describing is it sort of became codified mm-hmm. and sort of became a brand almost. Well, yeah. What, was there an awareness that this was happening among some of the old timers and thinking, wait, 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 we don't want this to happen? Or was it just like, what can we do? Well, it was both. I mean, there Or was were, there enthusiasm? Well, again, there were both. I mean, there were people that mm-hmm. wanted it to stay the you know kind of anarchy oriented event that it was which i think could have happened had the size of it been restrained i'm not sure how you would do that since it's kind of like a paradox right there you have no rules and structure so how do you enforce keeping it small you know people just show up and do what they want but larry sure wanted the thing to grow and a bunch of other so once they did put a fence around it and could start to control it certainly by things like selling tickets and raising revenue and implementing rules to keep it safe and some would say to make it less fun you know then then they could build a, a company which they did and uh you know became a non-profit gosh it's been probably at least five years ago now so um it is a corporation it's a non-profit corporation you know the org as they're called the organizers that run burning man they're very you know outspoken about their intent to continue to to spread the culture culture of this thing around the world as much as they can. What I'm curious, yeah, with this culture question or kind of the experience of it all, how would you describe, you know, you've, you said you took some years away from the festival, but then now you've come back in. And maybe we can get to this in a few, but like I would love like, a description of a day or two, like day in the life of Jerry James at Burning Man or what, you know, or what that's actually like out there in the desert. What do you do all day? Uh, when do they do these art events? Is there music? Is I mean, I'm just curious. How would you describe maybe a day then compared to a uh, 96 compared to a day in 2019 yeah hmm well you know my role then and now is not that different i mean i am one of the folks and there are many of us who really value it's called build week is the week before the event Mm. the the event's a week long Uh, build week we go out there and build stuff and of course that's preceded by uh, many projects which are built on or pre-built for months and months off-site and then we're able to get on to the playa at a designated date set by the bureau of land management that manage the site so in any case i like to go out there and, and build and create things and then during the festival well I don't know, get up and have fun <laughs> hang out with friends and 
go experience all kinds of interactions with people that have theme camps or drive all around what's called the deep playa, which is the open part of it where there's just sculpture after sculpture okay. and interactive, many of which are interactive or staged. And people, are they, do they bring their own sculptures with them or are they kind of art folks out there? Do they need to come during build week or as people are rolling in, do they kind of bring their own kind of little encampment? you know, set of structures and things or right. decor or whatever. Yeah, no, pretty much that all happens beforehand. So that by the, the time the event starts, you know, the idea is the sculptures are in place, the theme uh-huh. camps are in place. That doesn't always happen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know. Um, and then it's just a big party. Yeah. You know, but, a celebration, uh, right? Yep. When did, so I, I have a quote from NPR that I read uh, to you without prejudice. Okay. <laughs> And NPR says, of Burning Man, once considered an underground gathering for bohemians and free spirits of all stripes, Burning Man has since evolved into a destination for social media influencers, celebrities, and the Silicon Valley elite. So I'm curious, when did that happen? When did you first see a celebrity or a Silicon Valley elite there? Hmm. And did you sense that it was changing in that way? Yes, yes, yes. In the early 2000s, it started to, that started to happen. And it even preceded that to some extent because we heard about the techies really early on, you know. It wasn't the owners of the tech companies, I don't think, so much initially as some of their employees. And they like to come out there and, you know, take sledgehammers to computers and stuff like that <laughs> as a joke or to get rid of some angst or something. But but yeah, I, I don't know for what all reasons, but it certainly has become uh, popular with the the tech set and, and certainly some of the owners of it, the principals of tech companies, celebrities, sure. Um, Are they treated like celebrities the, out there? Well, you know, mostly I just have stories to what I know is secondhand. I mm-hmm. I ran into a lot of celebrities out there, I don't think. I just more like hear about them having been there. So do they, are they treated like it? I don't think so, so much. I mean, that's really kind of counter to the event. And therefore, you don't see, you know, the Rolling Stones playing out there and stuff because Burning Man doesn't want that. Mm-hmm. I could see where it would be attractive for celebrities to go then. Yeah. To just yeah, go and be absolutely. treated like a person. Yeah, that's true. I, I think that that definitely happens, and I, I know that some celebrities come and, and perform there. I mean, I've I've heard some stories and that are you know substantiated. I think Alan Parsons' project played there a year before last at 2018, kind of spontaneously. I don't know all the details, but I don't think it was all that planned, which is probably a good thing because again, uh, the organizers don't even want they don't like Burning Man be referred to as a festival, which is fair enough because I don't think it really compares to things like Coachella. And, so there is music on big stages? Yeah, oh yeah. Wow. Hmm. There is. There is live music mm-hmm. on big stages. Unfortunately, for my seat, the event continues, the music side of the event continues to be overshadowed by EDM, electronic dance music. Sure. And Not going to get an argument <laughs> from me on that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't want to grouse about it too much, but my main problem with EDM and its purveyors is they, they make too many of the rest of us listen to their stuff because they play it so long and loud. <laughs> it's all the same That's song. a pretty big complaint right there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, other but, than that, I don't care what people yeah. like. You know, I really don't. You just don't play long or loud. Or loud. Well, yeah. Don't make me listen to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, don't make me. I can't close my ears. So, <laughs> um, But, it, uh, you know, live music and uh, other types of music seems to be becoming more and more prevalent uh, out there, I'm glad to say. So, so yeah, there are some big stages. So just like a practical question, I guess, for those out there, how do you not like melt? I mean, it's the middle of summer or late summer. Is yeah. it still Labor Day weekend? 
Yes. Okay. And it's the desert and it's yeah. at elevation there. And so yeah. I'm just, how does that work? How many, how many sunstroke cases each year? And yeah. that's gotta be a huge concern, but I, I don't know. I've always thought that would be wild, the dusty and hot. Mm-hmm. So I've never gone, but, <laughs> but you tell, I'm, that's gotta be a huge concern. Maybe just the practicalities that maybe wasn't your area, but how much shade is there? No, lots of shade. Okay. Yeah, you gotta have shade. Yep. Um, it's a BYOS situation though, bring, right? Bring your own shade. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, I mean, here we're sitting here in Boise, which doesn't exactly have the most temperate summers. And no, it's hot. So I was thinking about going out here, south of town here yeah. and doing a party or have, going to a party or a not festival festival thing that uh, that yeah. would be unpleasant as yeah. well. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't been a builder all my life. I mean, um, you know, it's one thing when it's hot and you can find some shade and relax and do some fun things. It's another thing if you have to build out I in bet, it. I bet, man. And, 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 you know, sometimes you have to build and you don't have shade, yeah. whether it's a Burning Man or professionally in the world. Mm-hmm. I've, I've certainly done both. And and so, uh, gosh, I don't know. Yeah, it gets hot out there, and it is hot. It's a desert, and uh, plenty of shade is built. And as we've you know, I've mentioned, theme camps. So whether you do, whether folks get together and do an actual theme camp or not, um, it's certainly a, a wide, widely used practice to, for people to just group together and, and have larger camps so that they can pool their resources and make things like shade structures sure, you know, as a group sure it must be uh, and share resources imperative. instead of everybody having to do their own little, mm-hmm. right, right. little structures. Kind of building off of that, and I don't know if your role would let you see this, but was there, it seems like there could have been a dangerous lag between amount of people coming and growth and building the infrastructure to keep them all safe. Hmm. Did that happen? Did they manage to keep up? Because you've got, you know, you need bathroom facilities, you need food, you need all this stuff, you need, and you need shade, mm-hmm. you need first aid. Was there ever a time when the organizers were overwhelmed by the number of people? Hmm. I mean, I, I guess my first response is no, uh, largely, because, you know, again, right at the heart of this thing, it's a, it's a DIY event. I was going to refer to the 10 principles, and I'm sure there's something in there, right? Yeah, self-reliance is yeah. one of them. And it was always like that. So it's a camp out. So when you go camping, you know, you bring your own sleeping bag, you bring your own food, you bring your own beverages, you don't... So it's a different set of expectations, really. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that when you said, I don't want to call it a festival, that might be one of the things that makes it not a festival. If you go to the festival, you're expecting vendors and right. you know tons of bathrooms and all this stuff. But I guess, exactly. I guess that's different. So you have been... There were bathrooms. There are bathrooms. There were bathrooms even way back when. Okay. Okay. But, you know, there wasn't even ticket. I mentioned that uh, a fence was put around the thing for the first time in 97. Prior to that, which was the first 10 years of its existence, there were no tickets. There was no budget. So you shouldn't have expected to show up there and buy your food. Right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't now, like that. There weren't a lot of there weren't vendors, and that wasn't because they were prohibited at that point. I, I don't know why people didn't. Now that we're now that I'm considering it, why more people didn't sort of become vendors then, but uh, they didn't. I guess the folks participating were more interested in building art or having a fun time than profiting. Well, so now, again, it was always a DIY thing. Right. So if you didn't do that, then well, now it's five hundred twenty-five dollars, including a vehicle pass to get in. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It is a lot yeah. of money. Um, so are you going to read those principles? I'm curious. Sure. I'm, mm-hmm. I did not look those up. Here so. are the 10 principles of Burning Man. Radical inclusion, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, gifting, decommodification, participation, immediacy, and leave no trace. Bunch of radicals. 
Everything's radical. <laughs> a lot of radical, <laughs> but organized radicals. Organized, yes. Well, loosely organized. Loose, yeah, okay. So I had read, you had referred to doing a Burning Man show at CBGB's in 1997. <laughs> yeah. Is, is this something you have been doing? Are you, are you a Burning Man historian type of deal? Is that what you do with these shows? Well, I mean, that was a long time ago. That's the only, it was a one-off? Uh, yeah, yeah. That was a one-off. What the circumstance there was, that was a, actually a, a, like a book promotion for a mm. coffee table book that uh, Wired uh, Magazine did. So that summer, and I don't know when exactly the story came out, but Burning Man was featured on the cover of Wired Magazine. Bruce Sterling, I think, was the name of the writer. It was a sci-fi writer. Uh, no, it was a published writer. And, and he and his uh, wife and their little baby, I think, attended Burning Man. And then they he, he wrote this, this long story that was the, on the cover of Wired. Subsequent to that, Wired put together this big coffee table book. So the thing at CBGB's was to promote and sell that book. And but so is, they contributed no. a little bit of a budget and we got a bunch of us went out there. We we were able to pay for bringing, um, I think about 70 photographs, frame photographs that seven or eight photographers had done at Burning Man. CBGB's, so there's the Rock Club and right adjacent connected to it is uh, they have a cafe or did. And so most of what we did took place in the cafe. So we hung this photographic show and you know we had some musicians and some of us talked a little bit and and we actually had some bands next door in CBGB's the the night the rock club yeah, that's that's what we did, and that's why we did it. Yeah. So you are doing something at Storyforth yeah, this year. Yeah, that's absolutely something that it is kind of a he'll be what kind can of we origin expect? story historians, yes. and, we, and we're you know ironing out some of the details. But from my end, what Jerry and I have talked about is kind of the origin stories, and you how you can talk to mm-hmm. our audience here about kind of what year bring to these things but also there's some tree fort staff and tree fort fans and followers and attendees that hit up burning man i know so we're trying to pick the right couple people to be in conversation with you after you kind of speak to the origin story of uh, burning man and kind of have a conversation about what their experience has been and we'll figure all those things out moving forward we're recording this uh, in the in the winter so but the event will be in the spring at an undisclosed location at an undisclosed time or t BD. It's going to be really fun. I know you have some film and you bring, what else do you bring to these events that you've done where you've told the origin story? Well, I have photos. Photos, yeah. Including of the very first Burning Man. I think I showed you a couple of those. Yeah, those were great. So yeah, I've got photos, film. Um, you mentioned, I think, the idea of bringing some memorabilia. Oh yeah, that was right. We so, might have a little Maybe you can find those archives. two legs that are still missing. Uh, yeah, if we can <laughs> yeah. find the legs. <laughs> That would be awesome to have like a little archival kind yeah. of like table or two, and you know, yeah. and you could speak to the what those things are. Okay, and maybe some of the people involved, like who I mentioned, like Tree Fort folks or Boise folks, might have some uh, little souvenirs from their time or somebody could to yeah. bring out too. So, oh, there you go. That's a great idea. We try to get some good ideas, like, yeah, like this podcast. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So we're we're gonna start wrapping it up. But so how okay. at this point you're sort of I hope this doesn't sound wrong, sort of an elder statesman of Burning Man. Yeah. Is that something people know when they meet you? Is it something you're known for? Well, in those circles. You will be after Tree yeah. Fort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like I walk around even Burning Man headquarters and everybody recognizes me. They don't. But a bunch of people there do, and a bunch of people at the event itself do, but not not a large share of the 70,000 are going to recognize me right. when I look up. Although it often comes up in conversations either like, by myself or some of my friends will mention it to people. Because at this point, I yeah, I enjoy telling people that. And, you know, as you can imagine, often people are happy to meet me because I started something that means a lot to them. It changed their lives, they tell me. and. 
and, and talk, I'm really interested in those stories now. I ask people, well, how did it change your life? So. And, and talk a little bit just at closing. You were involved last year. Uh, I only, I have to admit, I only saw the headline and read a few pages or a few paragraphs. Uh, you got together and you built something to honor Larry. No, I didn't do what that. What was it that you were do that you did? Oh, my project this year was working at the Center Camp Cafe. There's a big mm, forty thousand foot. Yeah. Uh, well, the year before, I worked on Galaxia, which That's was, what the, it was the temple. Yeah. So for the last almost 20 years, there's been a, a temple built at Burning Man, and its purpose is to be a memorial space for people that have lost loved ones, and and you know, so people go in there and write stuff and put photos and everything. And of course, the whole thing gets mm. burned up eventually. So when I re-engaged with Burning Man in 2018, I got on the crew that built uh, Galaxia. This is this is a footprint of it. This is a planned view of Galaxia. He's pointing at his T-shirt. His logo right T-shirt. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was quite a, an amazing structure. So I I worked on that in 2018. Is there an element of spirituality to Burning Man? Well, there certainly is at, at this temple. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that is, really is a sacred thing there with people bringing all kinds of things to commemorate losing people. So that's quite a solemn, uh, beautiful thing. But outside of that, I, I don't think so. <laughs> and over time, have you seen multiple generations grow up at Burning Man? Well, I'm sure seeing them now. I mean, you know, I give these talks, and as you said, elder statesman, historian, often I tell the origin story of the Burning Man, and a lot of people I'm addressing now weren't born then. So it's certainly um, interesting to, to see that, that this thing has lasted long enough to, to be passed on and, and carried on and cultivated and whatever, changed by the next generation. Yeah, and if someone had told you in 1986, if you'd stepped in a time machine and, and landed at Black Rock in 2019, what would you have thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that would have been mind-blowing. It's still mind-blowing, even though it didn't happen quite as explosively as that. It's, it's kind of hard to get my head around being I a guy at a beach with a little stick man, and now mm -hmm. I see this yeah, all over the world. Yeah, I was just stuff. thinking about that, how much that's... I mean, how old were you at the time, I guess? Did I was 32. 32, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean. So over half your life. Yep. Yep. That's, and just that kind of would be a little daunting to think about. Do you walk around and every day at some point do you think, that was weird. How did that happen? I'm sure not every day, but sort of like you came in, you know, coming to Treepport or living here in Boise now and talking to us here today. But it's got to be, I mean, you don't have to really answer it. I'm just kind of marveling at what that would be like, you know, to just sort of change. I mean, just, it was so small and now it's so huge and it's so wild and just world known around the world. So mm. anyway, you can comment on that if you have any comments, but no need to if you don't. <laughs> I think it must be strange coming back to your hometown after all this. Does it ever seem like a 30-year fever dream? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I wasn't born and raised here. I didn't come here until I was 14. So Boise is a, one of my, my first adopted home. And then San Francisco, my second. I don't know. I think I mentioned to you guys before we started. I, I also go to San Francisco a lot. Yeah, it's very easy said. to get to. I mean, it's an hour and a half flight from here. So I go there often. And so a very small plane. Yeah. <laughs> well... 737, I think. But I, in fact, so much so that I bounce back and forth that um, sometimes when I'm, I'm filling out envelopes to pay bills, I, I go to write my return address hmm. and I have to kind of remember Oops. Boise or San Francisco. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Black Rock. <laughs> or, there you go. BRC. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are out of time. So I want to thank you, Jerry James, thank you, for yeah. coming today and filling us neophytes in on the tales of uh, definitely tales of uh, Burning Man. We'll hear more tales and history. Oh my gosh, can I talk mm, histories? Toy boat. 
Yes. Um, at Freeport Music Fest and Storyport, which is uh, free and open. Um, so just look for that schedule coming out and we'll uh, see you there. And I want to thank Treefort Music Fest and Eavesdrop Studios. Eavesdrop Studios. For making this podcast possible. Uh, until we meet again, you got something to say? See you at the fest. See you at the fest. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Very Thanks, Jerry. Treefort. But tomorrow never came.